young man straight out of seminary who was looking for um, a wife. And there were several options at the seminary. And, uh, and two rose to the top. One was gorgeous. And, uh, and that was about it. Um, and the other was super talented, super smart, wonderful singer. Uh, but not much to look at. And so the, <laughs> the young man went into prayer. Uh, God, um, what should I do? I know you've called me to the ministry. I know um, this woman would be a great service in the ministry to a pastor. Um, and he prayed all night and fasted. And finally, um, he made the decision um, to go with the talented option. Um, he decided his ministry was far more important than something as uh, as fleeting as looks. And so um, he married uh, the woman he felt would be the better pastor's wife. And uh, on their wedding night, um, when he got into bed and she went into the bathroom to get herself all dolled up, she came out and he looked at her and it dawned on him. And he said, baby, sing to me. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I uh, <laughs> I tease my wife with that story all the time because I actually fell in love with her voice before I fell in love with her. Um, I uh, was invited uh, to go to to her church before I ever knew her. Totally unrelated to her, somebody invited me to church, and I I sat and we started singing, and there was just this like angelic sound behind me, and I was like, "What on earth?" And so I'm trying to find that like cool way to like look around and figure out who's making this amazing music. So you can imagine my joy and relief when I turned around and realized she's also like a serious hottie. That was amazing. So um, uh, so actually, one of the reasons we chose Dan Fogelberg's um, Longer as part of this service was because Esther actually sang that song to me at our wedding. She didn't tell me she was going to. Totally surprised me with it. Um, she's never been very submissive. But um, she... Uh, uh, our wedding was actually full of music. We had so many songs that one of my friends um, that had known me well before Jesus kind of got a hold of my life, like freaked out. He was like, man, it was like the sound of music. I just kept waiting for you guys to do a do at the end. Like, like just like it's the sound of music at a wedding. So it was just like all music. Because music's been a huge part of our lives, uh, me and Esther, ever since. And, uh, and that's actually what we were talking about a little bit this Advent season. We started talking last week about the kind of power of, that music has over our health and well-being, um, the way that we can we can look back on all the times the Scripture commands us to sing, and they're starting to figure out scientifically that that's good for us, that the Bible's kind of been looking out for us all along, and the fact that this kind of holy, sacred, and cherished text that we wrap our lives around um, is not only you know the writings that we use to kind of orient how we should live, but we believe they're God's very words to us. And the fact that they include a songbook is amazing. The fact that they include um, a worship book is great. And it'd be one thing if all the worship was like Gregorian chants or you know Solideo Gloria or something like that. But these are these are songs that tell us to dance and shout and bang cymbals and and also really personal songs about the songwriters' lives, uh, the songs for the best days of our lives and the worst days of our lives. 
um, you know, a third of the songs uh, right smack dab in the middle of our Bible are, are written for people crying out in God's absence. So we've got songs for mountaintops and songs for valleys and, and songs for about everything in between. There's a song in the middle of our Bible that fits life. And I love the fact that in this, in this you know, ancient sacred text right in the middle is, is music. There's music woven into it. Um, and all this indicates to me that God and the people of God have always known that music is not just a pretty background thing. It's essential to what it means to be human. So we talked last week about, um, uh, before we kind of dove into our Advent virtue of peace last week, uh, our main point for this series that, we're, that we're, we plan on kind of driving home um, this entire month is we're stopping for a minute to listen to the background music, the, the soundtrack in our world right now, the score that is playing through the movie of our lives, the songs that, that, uh, that you're listening to without even realizing it. And, uh, and, and we're, we're freezing for one minute to listen to that and then do what they did and what David did in Psalms 42. He said, why are you downcast, O my soul? And why are you disquieted within me? Hope in God, for I shall um, yet praise him for the help of his countenance, for the beauty of his face is what that means in Hebrew. I love that statement for the, for the help us with the beauty of your face. Um, we're going to speak to our own souls this month and go, why are you listening to this garbage? Um, put on a better song. Um, we're going to uh, ask ourselves, even shocked, like, whoa, why are you acting like this, my soul? Why are you listening to this? What is going on here? Why are you singing along to this garbage? Why is this playing in the background? We need a better score, a better soundtrack. And we talked about how this is not denial. Um, this is not, you know, sticking your head in the sand and ignoring all the problems in the world and just... You know, a pie in the sky, you know, if you have enough faith, everything will be great kind of thing. We're recognizing our brain is complex enough to hold two truths simultaneously. Very, very few things in this world are A or B, either or. No matter how much politics tries to convince us that everything is binary, most of life is a discussion of nuance, nuanced truths. A little column A, a little column B. It took me years to get this, and my wife actually had to, had to teach it to me. Because I was always looking for a, a, a faith that was a perfect logical progression with no contradictions or paradoxes at all. Like, and, and, uh, and it was either this or that. And I would come to Esther and she would say, no, I believe both those. I'd be like, okay, that's funny, but you can't. Like, you can't. One, one excludes the other. You can't believe both. She's like, well, I do. I was like, well, that doesn't make any sense. You can't, you can't believe. If, if you believe this, that excludes all these things. You can't believe both. She's like, I do. It used to make me angry and I'd get grumpy. But what, what she always realized is, is while I was trying really hard to, to only believe one thing, I was flip-flopping all the time. I'd come in one day and I'm A and I'd come in the next day and I'm B and because I, I wanted to hold it together and there was things all over the place. And I realized um, that, that most things are, <laughs> are contradictions and nuances. And that, that's one thing when it's theology that doesn't really mean much to anybody. But what about when it's our lives? And we look around and the world is falling apart. And that's true. That's a true thing. And, and we can be easily persuaded to believe there's no God because this is falling apart. That God is not in control because this is falling apart. That it's either or. And we're starting to figure out our brains are big enough to both believe that the world's falling apart and it's a mess, yes. But God is also good and He's real and He's there. And sometimes those things feel like contradictions. But they're both true. So we feel like we, we, we sometimes have to surrender this track to listen to this. And, and what we're recognizing is it's not denial to go, both these things are true and I'm going to choose the better thing. 
yes, the world's a mess. Yes, my God is real. I'm going to choose to sing about my God is real. I'm going to choose, choose that over this. And we can, do, we can do that. And if the world's a mess, it is. But God is still in control. And I can choose to sing about that. And while we're on the subject of kind of this, this mind power, we call that metacognition is what they're calling it right now. Thinking about the way you think. Recognizing that you have thoughts that go through your head that you have power over. You can go, you know what, I see that. I'm going to choose to see something else. They're both true. I'm not denying what's there. I'm going, there's a better truth. I'm going to sing about that. It's called metacognition. It's kind of the newest thing. But we talked about that last week. This week we're going to do a little bit more fun um, brain stuff before we dive into this Advent, this week's Advent virtue. Because this, this week's virtue is love that we're talking about. And this is, of course, one of the richest and deepest subjects in the Scripture. It's awesome. Jesus summed up the entire Old Testament tradition and debate with the word love. It's a big word in the Bible. You really can't discuss, discuss a very bigger subject when it comes to the Bible or music. If you took, off all the music, took out all the music that was written either in the height of love or like right after love ended, we'd have very little music left. It would mostly be about drinking beer. Like that's, there's not much else to write about. Um, uh, most of the songs come about love. So without diving into the depths of, of biblical love, because we all know, you know there's four different words for biblical love and we can dive into that. I want to deal with some of the brain science of love. It's kind of neat. We talk all the time about dopamine and serotonin. You guys hear this word thrown around a lot. Dopamine is kind of a big deal right now because it's uh, dopamine levels are responsible for ADHD and a lot of the other um, kind of atypical cognitive um, situations. It's also dopamine is really attached to addiction, so we talk about that all the time, just you know how dopamine levels affect all this stuff. So it's kind of a big deal. Serotonin, another one, um, it's, uh, with anxiety and depression rampant, serotonin is the hormone associated with making you feel at peace and calm and at home. Um, and so, you know, serotonin levels, getting those right, you know, is a big deal right now. So we hear about those all the time. And, and these are kind of our two feel-good drugs we talk about that our brain produces. You want the right amount of dopamine to feel excited and happy and the right amount of serotonin to feel at peace and calm. And so they're, it's kind of our, uh, our uh, uh, pleasure and ecstasy and our peace and, and well-being, or serotonin and dopamine. Um, and so they're kind of a big deal. Um, and and, and the, the, the tough thing is these are responsible for way more than just feeling good. The feeling good part is actually kind of a byproduct. These are really important for neurotransmission and for your brain to work right, for everything to go right. Um, and, uh, and so they're not just to make you feel good. That's like the byproduct. When they're in the right place, you feel good. Um, but there's a third drug that's important. Oxycontin. Not Oxycontin. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no, that's, that's mine. Sorry. No, oxytocin. <laughs> oxytocin is, is the important one. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, oxytocin is associated with labor and, and delivery and nursing. It's like what it's for. It's excreted by the pituitary gland and its main function, especially in women, is the onset of labor and, and, and milk production. That's what oxytocin does. And the side effect of oxytocin, um, on the other hand, just like those other two neurotransmitters do a lot of things and the side effect is pleasure or peace, um, the side effect of oxytocin um, is the feeling of love. When you when your oxytocin levels are high, you feel love. Um, you can obviously see why this is really important when it's at its highest, uh, because of when a woman is sitting kind of sandwiched between this unbelievable ordeal of childbirth and this potentially worse ordeal of raising children, if she wasn't really high in oxytocin, the human race would cease to exist. Like so, all of you who who relish in the fact that your mother loves you, she was drugged. It was she was duped. It was no I'm kidding. I'm kidding. 
But uh, but yeah, it's it's important. Oxytocin is the love drug. It's it's the it's it's what our brains do. Blood tests um, show elevated oxytocin levels in anybody who is experiencing the falling in love feeling. They, they've tested people who are dating and feeling that that high of falling in love, and their oxytocin is through the ceiling. It's that your brain produces this thing to make you bond, to make you um, connect. What's even scarier is they can they can artificially give somebody oxytocin and make them feel like they're in love. Like they can produce the love feeling that is uh, with a with a needle. Um, incidentally, dopamine and serotonin and oxytocin, all three of those, all three of the feel great things, dopamine, serotonin, and oxytocin are all released in the process of lovemaking. Uh, so the the no matter what culture, what no, no matter what song culture is singing about Netflix and chill. Neurobiology agrees with with the Bible that sex is intended to deepen and enrich a, a relationship. There's nothing casual about the cocktail um, your brain produces in that process. It's it's not casual at all. It's very purposeful, um, and it uh, it denies everything that's being sung in our culture right now. But there's actually a point to all this neuroscience because there is a one way. Um, there's actually more than one way, but um, there's there's uh, one really important way to produce oxytocin in your body um, other than having a baby or, or, or nursing. Um, some of the smaller ways, skin, skin-to-skin contact ups your, your oxytocin, um, which is one of the reasons I think we shake hands and hug and, and kiss people on the cheek, especially people we care a lot about, because something about that skin-to-skin contact increases our oxytocin levels just a little bit, but it, it's something. Um, but other than one of the best ways to, in, to raise oxytocin, um, other than than um, than having a baby or or nursing is through singing, believe it or not. Singing raises our oxy oxytocin levels, um, especially when we sing with other people. Um, so, other than than maternal processes and marital processes, um, instantly sex does in, increase oxytocin more than singing. Um, so, but um, the the things we can do and should do in a group. Um, singing is singing is about it. Um, so, how much old wisdom is there in a group of people gathering once a week to sing together, to sing together in this world? <laughs> Stop it. <laughs> Let's move on. So, so as we as we dive into a song today in the Old Testament, one of our psalms, and it's a weird one. Please know that the act of singing. And the feeling of love go hand in hand. It's not a coincidence that we write love songs. Singing raises oxytocin to make you feel more in love. They're very closely related. We're reading this morning from Psalm 72. And for the sake of time, I'm just going to read the verses that are in this uh, year's lectionary passage. A, sol- a psalm of Solomon. Give your love for justice uh, of justice to the king, O God, and righteousness to the king's son. Help him judge your people in the right way. Let the poor always be treated fairly. May the mountains yield prosperity for all, and may the hills be fruitful. Help, uh, help him defend the poor and rescue the children of the needy, and to crush their oppressors. May they feel, or may they fear you as long as the sun shines, as long as the moon remains in the sky, yes, forever. May the king's rule be refreshing, like spring rain on a freshly cut grass, like the showers that water the earth. May all the godly flourish during his reign. May there be abundant prosperity until the moon is no more. Praise the Lord God, the God of Israel, 
who alone does such wonderful things. Praise his glorious name forever. Let the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. Now, we're going to dive straight in and do a little bit of background work here because like last week, this psalm is one of the cool ones where we can place it pretty close to exactly when it was written. Um, there's some markers here that kind of aid us in knowing the background of this psalm. Um, this was written by Solomon. We know that it says it at the beginning. And, and based on its contents, it was written sometime not long after Solomon um, prayed his kind of famous prayer requesting wisdom and understanding from God. If you go too deep into Solomon's life, he kind of got off track. And I don't think he would have written this particular psalm. So we know it happened somewhere fairly close to after he prayed this this prayer. And, and that moment reads like this. It's from 1 Kings. It says, That night the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream. And God said, What do you want? Ask, and I will give it to you. Solomon replied, You showed great and faithful love to your servant, my father David, because he was honest and true and faithful to you. And you have continued to show this great and faithful love to him today by giving him a son to sit on the throne. Now, O Lord... You have made me king of Israel, uh, king instead of my father David, but I am like a little child who doesn't know his way around. And here I am in the midst of your chosen people, a nation so great and numerous they can't be counted. Give me an understanding heart so that I may govern your people well and know the difference between right and wrong. For who by himself is able to govern this great people of yours? The Lord was pleased that Solomon had asked for wisdom. So God replied, Because you have asked for wisdom in governing my people with justice and have not asked for a long life or wealth or death, uh, or the death of your enemies, I will give you what you asked for. I will give you a wise and understanding heart such as no one else has ever uh, or will ever have. And I will also give you what you did not ask for, riches and fame. No other king in the world will be compared to you in the rest of your life. And if you follow me, obey my decrees and commands, as your father David did, I will give you a long life. Then Solomon woke up and realized it had been a dream. He returned to Jerusalem and stood before the Ark of the Lord's Covenant, where he sacrificed burnt offerings and peace offerings. Then he invited all his officials to a great banquet. Now, what I love about this story is is some of the emotional associations here. Um, this is like super rich, deep psychology. Like this could actually be a case study, which is kind of cool. Um, but if you were raised in a Christian home, and, uh, and really even if you weren't, and someone asked you about your parents' faith, uh, you probably wouldn't answer with theology. Very few people um, uh, have real, a real theological understanding of what their parents believe. Most people, when they're asked, don't say, this is the theology of my parents. Most people pick up like emotional impressions like about their parents' faith. So they might say, my mom was really legalistic. Like, you know, or my parents were believers, but they weren't really committed. My dad went to church, but it wasn't really his thing. My parents were really into church, but we never talked about Jesus at home. Like, they have these kind of emotional impressions about what their parents believe. Not so much like deep theological understanding. Esther was raised in a very theological church. Um, uh, a lot of teaching and pretty deep teaching. And they had very specific beliefs. And anyone who held different beliefs were kind of viewed as like second-rate Christians. Not unbelievers, but definitely like lower ranks. Like that's kind of the way they, they believed. And this always bugged Esther at a level that she couldn't even really analyze or understand um, because her grandfather on her mother's side held none of those beliefs. And she, and, and she knew that her church kind of saw him as, as lower, but she didn't know anybody that loved Jesus like her grandpa. And so 
at a very young age, she had this confusion like, how can my grandpa, who I know loves Jesus more than anybody I know, you know, because he doesn't believe the same thing as my church, be less. And so, and, and none of that was, she wasn't old enough to like base any of that on theology. All she knew was this feeling that my grandpa loves Jesus. It was this, this emotional overview. Now, obviously, David's relationship with God was very complex. We have it all through the Psalms. As any real relationship with God is, David wrote about how amazing God was and how God had completely abandoned him. David wrote about um, how you know God was responsible. With God's power, I can scale a mountain. And he wrote about how God broke all his bones and was the reason he was sick. Like he 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 wrote about you know how amazing God was and how awful it was to serve God. Like there's one where he's like, everybody hates me because of you. Like that's what David says to God. Like I try to stand for you and everybody hates me because I do it. Like complain. And most of us have felt that. Like I, I don't get to fit in because I love you. Like it's a, it's a real feeling. So David wrote this about this very complex and rich relationship with God. This very real relationship with God. He saw God's amazing grace and he suffered some really extreme consequences for some of his actions. Like he got to experience all of it. Uh, and, but at the end of David's life, Solomon doesn't draw to all that. Solomon doesn't really draw to how complex and full it was. Uh, he says this, um, You showed great and faithful love to my father, David. And he says, And you have continued to show this great and faithful love to him today. So Solomon, at the end of David's life, is like, All I know is God loved my dad. That's all I know. He didn't, he didn't have a, like a deep and rich understanding of David's theology necessarily. All he knew was... Man, my dad had a love relationship with God. This kind of this emotional impression, this association. If you ask Solomon, you know, uh, if you ask David what it's like to serve God, you'd probably get a three-hour dissertation. Man, some days it's great and some days it's horrible. Man, we went through this, we went through that. Like, if you ask Solomon, you know, what it was like, what's 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 it like to live with God? He's like, man, it's love. God loved my dad. Like just, you know, and, and he just had this emotional connection to love. And what Solomon feels or associates with his father's relationship with God is love. You loved my dad. That's all I know. And I think it's really important as we kind of lean into this morning's psalm because if I'm right about Solomon writing this not long after that moment, that moment that he prayed that prayer, God, I know you love my dad. I know you did. Here's what I want. Um, uh, then then um, I think it's super cool to imagine the son of a songwriter like trying to both honor his dad and honor his God, what's he going to do but write a song? And so he wrote, and Solomon did not, he wrote a lot, but not very many songs, like not very many worship songs. And so the fact that Solomon has a song in the songbook and he wrote it like right after his dad is dying, I think it's super cool. I think he's like, what would my dad do to honor God in this moment? Of course he would write music. I'm going to write a song. And so Solomon sits down to write this song to the God that he knows loved his dad. That's all he can really associate with his dad's relationship with God was love. And so he sits down to write worship music. Um, but what I do love about this kind of young, ambitious, emotional son writing music to God, because that's what his dad would have done, um, is, is this psalm doesn't sound like, and from a, like a psychotheological standpoint, um, this song is weird because it doesn't feel like love. Um, Solomon feels love when he tries to come up with something that sums up his dad's relationship with God. But when he breaks it down to what he thinks that should look like in real time, it's very different. Um, he says in the first verse, give your love of justice to the king. Like that isn't something we would normally associate with love. Oh God, righteousness to the king's son. 
He's not just asking God for justice and righteousness. He's asking God for the love of those things. I want to love those things. I love this because we have this tendency, especially with a concept as grand and like ethereal as love, to use word, this word all the time. Uh, and it, it, we use it so much it tends to mean nothing. We love our spouse and we love our kids. We also love a great cheeseburger. <laughs> and, and how do those things go together? We love this song. Oh, I love this song. And I love God. Like, and, and we use the word so much it loses its meaning. We, lo- we love this person that we've known for three dates. Like, I'm falling in love. Like, like, like with a cheeseburger? Like, that took one bite. Like, I think the cheeseburger wins. Like, three dates? Man, I fell in love with a cheeseburger in my first bite. Um, but, it, but we use the word so much it, it becomes meaningless. So Solomon doesn't just say, God, I want you to love me like you love my dad. That's all I want. I just want, I want you to love me. I know you love my dad. I want you to love me. Beautiful sentiment. And that would have worked for somebody probably as emotional as David. Like, God, I just want your unfailing love. He's saying that quite a bit. Those words, unfailing love. But when we read Solomon's part, it sounds a little different. Let's read it again. He says, the Psalm of Solomon, give your love for justice to the king. God, righteousness to the king's son. Help him judge your people in a right way. Let the poor always be treated fairly. May the mountains yield prosperity um, for all. May the, the hills be fruitful. Help him defend the poor and rescue the children of the needy and crush their oppressors. May they fear as long as the sun, fear you as long as the sun shines, as long as the moon remains in the sky. Yes, forever. May the king's rule be refreshing like the spring, spring rain on freshly cut grass and the showers that water the earth. May all the godly flourish during his reign and may there be abundant prosperity until the moon is no more. Praise the Lord God, the God of Israel. Who alone does such wonderful things. God, I know you love my dad. Now love me by sending these things. This is what love should look like, he's saying. I want justice and righteousness, good judgment and fair treatment, prosperity, defense of the poor, rescuing children, crushing oppressors, universal fear of God, deep soul level, refreshing, flourishing, and and wonderful things at the end, he says. And all this is a really long-winded way of saying that... Love is less about what you feel and more about what you do. And Solomon sees that. Solomon's like, I, I want you to love me, but, but I'm a word guy and I want to define what I think that looks like. I want you to love me like you love my dad and, and here's how I think that should play out. Anybody remember that song in the 90s, More Than, more than Words? Extreme? Oh yeah, right? If I could sing well, I'd sing it to you right now. Great song. Saying I love you is not the words I want to hear from you. It's not that I want you not to say it, but if you only knew how easy it is to show me how you feel, more than words is all you have to do to make it real. Then you wouldn't have to say you love me because I'd already know. You can hear it in your head, can't you? Anybody? Yeah. Um, you're trying not to sing it right now. I feel it. I feel it. Um, and this song is kind of funny for Esther and I because we had, this like, we had like a really early in our relationship, we had a debate over this song because she was a Christian girl who was well-trained in the art of defending her purity against all manner of wily attacks from young men like myself. And she, and when I told her I love that, oh, this is such a great song, I love this song, um, she felt like when, the, song, when the, the songwriter was saying, I want more than words, he was asking for inappropriate uh, uh, ways of showing love. Um, and uh, inappropriate proofs of love from a desperate young songwriter. And I argued, if you've ever dated somebody who was liberal with the words I love you, but not very good at demonstrating love with things like fidelity or genuine attention, you know, that saying I want more than words could mean something altogether different, which, you know, we debated back and forth about it. But 
What was interesting is in our debate, we both totally accepted the, the premise of the song, that love is about more than words. Love requires something more than words. And Solomon is saying that exact same thing here. God, I want you to love me, but, but uh, just like you love my dad, but here's what I think that should look like. It's more than words. It's more than just feeling like you love me. It's, it's, let me describe it to you. It's justice. It's righteousness. It's, it's flourishing. It's, it's all these things. And Solomon's description doesn't seem remarkably romantic. It seems pretty unromantic. Things like, you know, uh, you know, we're used to like the love songs. Like, if you fall, I will catch you. I'll be waiting time after time. Like, that's what we think of when we think of love songs. When you smile, the whole world stops for a while. Because, girl, you're amazing just the way you are. It's good stuff. Take me to your heart. That's where I belong. That's Elvis. I had to look that one up. Longer than there's been fishes in the ocean. Higher than any bird ever flew. Longer than there's been stars in the heaven. I've been in love with you. Man, you can't get much richer than Fogelberg, right? Stronger than any mountain cathedral. Truer than any tree ever grew. Deeper than any forest primeval. I am in love with you. Whew. And don't get me wrong, those are beautiful and romantic and we should never get rid of the love songs. I love a good love song. I have goosebumps like right now, literally. And if neuroscience is right, singing a good love song can produce neurotransmitters needed to feel like we're in love. And that's good. That's a good thing. I'm not, I'm not dishing, dissing the love songs. But if Solomon were writing a love song to, to, a, to a woman instead of to his God, it would be something like, when you take out the trash, I feel like you love me. Like that doesn't fit well. Maybe a country song, but that's about it. You could maybe squeeze it. When you cook for me, when, when you sit down and pay bills with me, when you discipline the kids so I don't always have to be the bad guy, that's when I feel love. That's the kind of song Solomon is writing it here. When you take care of me when I'm sick, when, when you go to work every day to provide for us, when you fix the things around the house, when you clean the house, those things make me feel love. That's the kind of love song Solomon is writing here. And, and maybe it isn't sexy, but it's dripping with love which introduces a classic kind of biblical reality that we talk about all the time. Bible love isn't necessarily touchy-feely emotional love. God's love is an action. And I could spend forever breaking down the four different Greek words for love in the New Testament and how important the distinction is. But let's stay in English today. Because I don't have time. I wish I did. Um, Because I think extreme from the 90s had it right. Love is more than words. It's also more than a feeling. And, and please don't think for a second I'm saying I'm bashing the feeling of love. The feeling of love is great. There's no better feeling. It's amazing. Love feels great. If you can catch that feeling, do it. Write it. It's good. I'm not saying it's bad. But we need more than that, don't we? Because today our world is being decimated by the consequences of people who, who chased the feeling of love and that was it. A couple generations of people in America were, were raised on Disney love. You know, the, the, the big climactic kiss that comes with a goosebumpy score and a happily ever after. Like, we were raised on that. That that's what love is. And those generations chase that moment. A couple of us, we chase that, that feeling. And we caught it. We did. We, most of us, we caught that magical moment. We felt love and it lasted like ten minutes. And then we got really good at quitting and chasing it again. And then quitting and chasing it again. And so, so the nuclear family began to slowly be destroyed by people chasing love. And now their kids are becoming adults. 
and 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 trying to figure out how to how to navigate this idea of love. And, and guess what they're doing? Most of them are giving up on it. They're giving up on the idea of commitment and, and long-lasting things, even the emotional feeling of love. And they're trying to now um, separate and, and divorce things like sex from love. Like, like we can just do this and, and not get into that whole love thing. That thing, you know, was was a joke. Nobody's stuck with that. Like everybody just bails on that. So so why try? Fewer and fewer millennials are getting married. Like and and just making the decision early. I don't I don't plan to go down that road. And and Gen Z are making the millennials look like puritanical prudes. Like they're, you know, it's it's crazy. But when, when, when we're all doing nothing but chasing a feeling of love, what else can we expect? Because, because that feeling is temporary. So when Solomon, the man to whom God granted supernatural wisdom, wisdom writes a song to the God he associates with love, when he thinks about God, he thinks about love, the very first thing he could say to God was, I know how much you love my dad. So this God that he associates with love, in his wisdom, he writes a love song about things like justice and prosperity, and good judgment, and defending children, and crushing oppressors. Like that's, that's what Solomon thinks about when he thinks about love. Because at the end of the day, isn't that the love that lasts? Isn't that the love that lasts? And this is where the true song of love, biblical love, Psalm 72 love, clashes with the kind of love that our culture is trying to set as the soundtrack to our lives, the background music, the score. Our culture has adopted a completely warped definition of love. And the bummer is it's not even necessarily a lie. Granted, it, it, it kind of stems from, from a long uh, Disney love upbringing. You know, tons of oxytocin in the music. And the fact that 90% of the movies we watch end with the kiss. You know, it's it's uh, it's not weird that that that's what we associate with love, but it's really bad when that's as deep as it goes. Because right now our culture tells us that anything that doesn't produce oxytocin isn't love, and that's where it gets dangerous. We're told that love means I like everything about you and I accept and approve of everything you do and I deem all your behavior good. Like that's what the world is trying to tell us love is. We're told that love starts by loving myself and who I am and looking after my own well-being first. That's what the culture tells us love is. We're told that love means passivity and tolerance and the rejection of anything that sets boundaries on our behavior. And we're told that that's what love is. In other words, we're told that love is mostly meaningless. And I think the American church has bought into this. I'll give you an example. Solomon asks for justice. Justice. Now, in America, we have an issue with God's justice. We don't really know what to do with it. Because we tend to focus on God's love, right? John says God is love, and we try to embrace that concept in our kind of Disney-soaked hearts. And when we do speak of God's justice, we, we mostly just speak of Him pouring out justice on the unbelievers at the end of time. Like, it's really all we know what to do with God's justice. We don't, we don't really understand how it applies. But in most parts of the world... You cannot separate God's justice from His love. Because we have access to justice. Like, it may be twisted, maybe sometimes it doesn't work right, but at the end of the day, we assume if there's a major issue, we can call the police. 
or if there's a major issue, you know, we can sue somebody and the courts will sort it out. Like we, we kind of have this foundational understanding that there is some justice to an extent, like in America. But most of the Christian world doesn't have that. The majority of Christians today live in places where anything you own can be taken away with no recompense. People can be killed and, and there is no punishment. Um, there is literally zero justice. And so if you try to go into those places and talk about God's love that doesn't also include God showing up with justice, and I'm not talking about like justice on the unbeliever, I'm talking about punishment of evildoers. Like if you go to most places in the world who have seen atrocities and no justice around it, and you tell them God's coming to love everybody, that's meaningless to them. They're like, if God loves me, he will bring justice because I have seen evil. And God's love has to bring justice. And so when Solomon asks, you know, and they would say, what good, what good on earth is God's love if it doesn't also bring justice? What good is that kind of love? In the face of real evil, murderers, tyrants, cartels, principalities, powers, how can God's love not also bring justice? And that message is muddy and difficult in America because we aren't necessarily starving for justice the way some places in the world are. But the majority of Christians, the Christian world reads the first part of this psalm and resonates with it. God, give me justice. That's how I would know you love me. That's romance. It's doing things right. And of course, as we go deeper in this song, we find real love is dripping from every verse. Because here's the deal. Our love-soaked culture is really bad um, at, at un- truly understanding love. And it makes some of us crazy. If you were asked, you know, um, why that may, why our culture makes us crazy, uh, it can be hard to name for some of us. We get frustrated because our culture isn't doing things the way we think they should. Um, you might say something like the young generations are soft and lazy and, and they're not the way old generations used to be. You might say, you know, uh, mention casual sex and swiping right or left. I've never actually seen one of those apps, but I know they're out there, you know, the hookup apps. Um, I didn't want to say the wrong one. I don't because everybody might think I'm weird. Um, you might say it's gender confusion or Hollywood or or how revealing the clothing is nowadays. We, you know, we try to pick on little things. We, but but at its root, we're annoyed because um, not because of the way all this seems offensive to God, and it is. And unfortunately, our, you know, our culture has grown so used to the the love song that is the soundtrack of our lives right now. The world believes that our frustration with the way things are um, is is just that we don't like the way they're doing things. That's the way it feels to them. They're like, yeah, they don't like. They're grumpy about everything. Blah, blah, blah. But but that ir- irritation is not just frustration that things aren't the way uh, we think they should be. It goes much deeper than that. The real tragedy isn't that our country isn't honoring God and is just doing things that are downright biblical. That annoys us at a shallow level. But that's not the real problem. The Roman Empire wasn't honoring God at all. And so what God did was he took 120 people and he overthrew it. 120 people, poor, powerless people, and he just overthrew that empire. Believe me, God isn't up in heaven like freaking out that America's not honoring him. <laughs> he knows how to overthrow an empire to honor him if he wants to. So it's so some of the things that annoy us, I don't think God is nearly as freaked out about as we are. The real tragedy in the direction of our nation is it doesn't offer what Solomon's asking for. Prosperity, flourishing. Our kids are being sold a bag of goods that not only doesn't draw them closer to Jesus 
and is in fact unbiblical. The real tragedy is the fact that it's leading him down a path that leads to poverty and misery rather than prosperity and flourishing. And this is why Solomon's song is so important because if you set a, a love song to be the score of your life and it's all about acceptance and tolerance and you do you and you're perfect just the way you are and it rejects any hard truths whatsoever, that song leads to misery at the end. That's the sad part. Not just that it annoys us. We wish you'd dress different. We wish you'd take the tackle box off your face and we wish you'd, you know, all that stuff. That's meaningless. What's bad is like, where is this going to lead you? We're praying for prosperity and, and flourishing. Solomon knew that he, he needed a love that was more than a sentiment. He wanted something that leads to, to health and well-being. And, and that meant he also was going to have to ask for judgment, and justice, and righteousness. Because those things go together. You can't have one without the other. And we have a really dangerous thing happening in our country that, that starts with a misunderstanding of love. See, if you can convince a sick person that the cure is poison, then you don't even have to do anything. Once you convince them that the cure is poison, your job is over. They're already sick. You don't have to keep attacking. Once you convince them that what they need is going to hurt them, then your job is done. Our culture is currently telling people that love, biblical love, Psalm 72 love, love that comes with justice and consequences, love that, that comes with sacrifice and good judgment and, and, and righteousness, we're convincing people that that kind of love is hate. And once you, once you sell that message, your job is done. Because everything they need to be saved, you've, you've taken from them. And there may be no more insidious message in our world right now. Because real love, biblical love, Psalm 72 love is the cure. And how, how could you ever get more satanic than to convince a culture that the kind of love that can save them and lead them to prosperity and flourishing is actually hate? Once you sell that message, you're done. And it's only hate because it stings a little. It's only hate because it hurts a little at first. And this leaves us, the church, in a difficult spot. Because the world that we were sent to help and bless presents itself to us in a broken and ravished state. The world's a mess. Anxiety and depression are off the chart. Divorce is becoming the norm. Every single marker we have for just general happiness and satisfaction is in the toilet. Like, across the board. Entertainment has moved beyond the realm of like an occasional escape from the monotony of life, which is what entertainment is supposed to do, and it's good, it's healthy. We need that diversion. The Bible, the Old Testament had festivals that you were required to go to. Like God was like, if you don't party, you will be judged. Like He, he knew we needed that. We need an occasional diversion. We need entertainment. It's, it's healthy. But when that moves from like an occasional escape to this like gluttonous numbing of anything real, and it's constantly available, and we just keep ourselves entertained so we don't ever have to feel or, 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 or bump up against something. The world is a mess. So it would be one thing if, if the world was throwing off all restraints and they were just doing whatever they wanted to do and they were happy and satisfied. Then you'd have to argue, well, whatever, you're happy. But what's terrible is they're miserable. And we all know people that are doing dumb stuff and they're miserable. 
and they're and and they're getting more and more medicated, and they're self-medicating. They're trying everything they can to find happiness, and they're and they're they're going the absolute wrong direction. And every and you're like, how can you not put those together? Most of the world is denying justice and righteousness and judgment and the things that can help them, and they're miserable for it. And the world comes to us in this awful state, and we can help. We can. We have the answers. We have the book that has the answers. We can help. But in the background, you hear this song playing that says, Your help is hate. And it just plays and plays and plays and plays. And that is hard. When you know you can help. When you know you're supposed to help. And I don't mean you. I mean we have the access to God's Word. And we can help. But they've been convinced that our help is hate. So what is the church to do? What do we do when the world wants romance and we have diapers, bills, and home repairs? When the world wants wants longer than there's been any mountain primeval, well, you know, and we've got mow the lawn. Start there. I have two things. Two things we can do. First, it starts here. It starts with us. We have to change our song. We need a new score in the background. We need to walk through those doors every Sunday looking for real love. We need to walk in with a song in our heart that says, Offend me. Stretch me. Challenge me. Grow me. Make me better. I am not okay the way I am. I need you to make me better. I need the Holy Spirit to, to, to pick on me and not stop picking on me until I'm better. We have to give up this thing that we're never supposed to be offended. Our culture is singing that song and it's a dangerous song. It is a dangerous song. So we need to walk in every day. Like Paul had this thing, I wish we had time to dig into it in Romans 7 where he's like, he's like, I'm a mess. The things I want to do, I don't do. The things I don't want to do, I keep doing them. What is going on? Who's going to deliver me from this mess? Who on earth can help? I love that he just put that out there. Like, I am a mess. Don't even think for one second I'm okay the way I am. I am not. You're perfect just the way you are. That's a dangerous message. And it's a, it's a horrible message. Like, if you're hurting and you're broken and you, and, and you just know you wake up aching and someone tells you you're awesome just the way you are, that's sad. This is as good as it gets. This, this feels awful. I'd much rather hear me go, you're, you're hurting because you suck. <laughs> you're, a, you're a mess and you need to make changes. Then there's somewhere I can go. Then there's something I can do. Like at least I know I'm not stuck here. There's some changes I could make to make things better. It's a sad message to tell somebody you're perfect just the way you are. I'd be okay if I felt great. I don't feel great. I want to know there's something better. And none of that's in my thing, so i got to figure out where I am. <laughs> but that's how we need to walk into church every morning. That's how we need to wake up every morning. God, I'm not there yet. Please tell me there's improvements I could make. Please tell me there's more I can do. Come and pick on me, Holy Spirit. Dive in and offend the heck out of me so that I know there's somewhere I can go. Keep chipping away at me. Keep, keep convicting me and pestering me. I want judgment and righteousness and consequences because I know that's how I get to prosperity and flourishing 
than the other things that Solomon's asking for. It starts with us. We don't dare threaten the world with judgment and then come in these doors and ask for mercy. We come in here and go, God, this is where it starts. Pick on me. Make me more like you so that I can go out in the world and make a difference. With fear and trembling, we ask for judgment. And then the strength to use it to get better. We need to invite each other into our lives to help us grow, even if it stings. Talk to me. If you see something, I'm doing something. Man, it starts here. Several months ago, a friend challenged me about some of the jokes I tell from the pulpit and my language and a few things, other things I say from the pulpit regularly. And actually, I talked about it in one of my messages earlier this year. And here's the deal. If this friend were confronting my theology, I would have sat down on a Bible study with him, showed him why I believe that, and probably helped them find a church that suits them more theologically, because I can't bend on my theology. Like I, I have to teach what I feel like God reveals to me from the Bible. And, if, and, and even with my behavior, because we weren't discussing theology, theology, we were discussing my behavior. And even at that, I, I usually have a fairly good argument for why I do what I do. I've usually studied it, and, I, and you know, even the things that kind of tend to offend evangelicals every once in a while, I have a reason. I've, I don't just do it willy-nilly. I've looked up why, and, and it, it bugs some people, and I kind of like bugging people sometimes. So I, I do it on purpose a little bit to push buttons, but, but I have Scripture to, to defend myself usually. But this friend made one statement. This friend made one statement that made me stop and pray. Honestly, I prayed for a while. He said, I have friends that I would love to invite to church, but I think they'd be turned off by some of your jokes. And I had to think about that. Because at the end of the day, it doesn't matter if, if everything I do and say I can defend biblically, if there are people that I can't talk to about Jesus because of the way I act, then I've got to change the way I act. Because that's love. And so I had to go, okay, I, yeah, I can sit here and tell you why I'm allowed to do all these things, but at the end of the day, if they're not helpful, I need to change. I need to change. I need to change the way I act because that because I want to love people. And if I would have been willing to, to, to take that, then where does that leave me? If I never accept that, that, that being the people of God and trying to orient ourselves around the love of God means that I'm going to need to grow and change. Things in me are going to have to always change. I'm going to have to be conformed and, and that means I'm going to have to be confronted. Someone's going to have to say, hey, this isn't, I'm concerned about this. Talk to me about this. But if I'm not open to that, and I just listen to the song of the culture, which says, you're perfect just the way you are. Anybody that tries to, to tell you anything is just hate. That's hate. You just, you cancel them. You just cancel them. Because that's hate. Then where does that leave me? We'd be lost. So the first thing is it starts here. We have got to, we have, we as the people of God have got to understand part of being the people of God is being offended. Part of being the people of God is having the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives to pick on us. That's why He's there. He's coming to convict of sin. Like that, that's biblical. Like, and, and we should come in the door knowing part of what it means to be here is to be offended and stretched and changed and, and to be told you're not okay just the way you are. That's part of the package. We gotta get that first. The second thing we have to do when facing kind of a broken world who believes that real love is actually hate is to remember that Psalm 72 is not about Solomon. I think Solomon thought it was about Solomon. I think he wrote it about himself. God, give me wisdom and give me justice. But in his divine wisdom, God was talking about the true son of David. He wasn't talking about Solomon. Jesus is the king who is the perfect balance of justice and love, judgment and prosperity, righteousness and flourishing. 
Jesus is where all these beautiful traits come together in one person. And ultimately our goal is not to force our understanding of love on the people of this world, but to introduce them to the lover. That's our job. If we introduce them to Jesus, we introduce them to the one who has all of those things. Every single person that met Jesus felt both convicted and loved. I don't know how he did it, but he did it. Every single person knew I'm not okay just the way I am. And yet this person sees me and loves me. Jesus is how we, is how we fix the broken world. Our goal is to introduce them to Jesus. Jesus' job to change the world is mostly our job to follow. So it starts with us welcoming the Holy Spirit's tough love into our lives to confront us and grow us and do everything we can to honor, glorify, and advance Jesus in the world. Not us, not our agenda, Jesus. So that the same Holy Spirit can also change others. So how do we respond to this? Um, if you want a fun little number that uh, that can change your life this week, <laughs> um, and I think it can also help uh, regulate... Um, your emotions if, if you want to play with it but it, I think it also fits well into Psalm 72 90 seconds that's the magic moment that's the magic number 90 seconds is about how long oxytocin or any other neurotransmitter stays in your bloodstream 90 seconds so when you feel a strong emotion your brain releases this cocktail of chemicals uh, into your blood that has a physical effect on your body that's why we call them feelings because you actually feel them it actually happens somewhere in your body. The, uh, there's co- your brain releases a cocktail. You feel it in your body. And then what happens, neuro- neurologists call this the judgment cycle, is then your rational brain, because it moves much slower than your emotional brain, scripts uh, a narrative as to why you're feeling that. It actually, and 90% of the time it's obvious. I feel anger because you're acting stupid. And that makes me angry. Like So normally the narrative fits the feeling. Like you immediately know... Like, you feel it, and then you're like, oh, that's because you're acting that way. That makes me, that's why I'm feeling this. But oftentimes, it's a thought that does it. Or, and it can do it the exact same way. You have a thought, or something triggers something, and your, your brains release a cocktail. And you feel something. And it doesn't always fit. Like, sometimes you, somebody will say something, and you'll feel hurt. And if you're rational, you know they didn't mean to hurt you. They said something, you know, a little bit casual. You're like, ooh, that stung. Like, you feel it. Like, that hurt. And, and the scary thing is, and we even talked last week about ants, automatic negative thoughts. Many of us have them. They just, they roll in there and they roll in there. And what happens is when, when you have a negative thought or, or something triggers you, you get that cocktail and then you'll, what you'll do is you'll script a narrative that fits. You're like, well, of course he's mean to me. Everybody's mean to me. My parents were mean to me. People are always mean to me. And the more you think it, the more your brain produces the cocktail and they call it an emotional loop. You get stuck in this. You're now creating a narrative that makes the the cocktail fit. You're like, that's, I, of course I feel this way. I'm stupid. Like, you know, when I when I act stupid, I have every reason to feel bad. And, and you stay in this little loop. So the magic number is 90 seconds. When an ant comes, when an automatic negative thought comes, when anything comes, if you can freeze for 90 seconds and go, ooh, I feel hurt. I'm just going to analyze that feeling. What's going on in me? Okay, my, I feel sick to my stomach, blah, blah, blah. Give it 90 seconds. Try not to judge it. Just give it 90 seconds. The cocktail will go away, and you can actually think about what's going on. They didn't mean to hurt me. They were just being telling a joke, and it just triggered me. That's really hard to do when the cocktail's in there. When the chemicals are in there, it's really hard to, to analyze the situation accurately because your brain is trying to tell you you got hurt. If you wait 90 seconds, 
you can you can actually think about it for real. I make it sound way easier than it actually is. It's hard. I've been I've been playing with it for about a year now. It's really hard. And it works in funny ways when you're feeling like feeling in love, when you've got oxytocin going, you think about the person all day. That's what that's what that falling in love thing is. You somebody triggers oxytocin, it's going, and then you're like, Oh, they're so amazing, they're so awesome. You think about it all day and it keeps the oxy flowing. So you're you're sitting there like perpetuating the feeling of falling in love. And and you're stuck in a really nice, really good feeling emotion loop. Like, and the more you think about them and the more you dream about them, you text them during the day, it just keeps the oxytocin going and you feel great. It's amazing. But that also works on negative emotions. Once you get them going, if you can't stop and get out of the cocktail, it's really hard to get out of them. You'll just sit there and loop in them. I lost my spot. So this week, as we meditate on the Advent virtue of love, I think the way we need to respond to this message is by listening to the, the song of love that the culture is singing. Listen especially for, for the, the things in our culture that our culture is calling hate. And pay attention to it. Is that really hate? Is it really hate? Listen to the things that offend you personally. What's triggering you? Where it comes from your spouse, from your family members at Christmas gatherings, Whatever. What, what's, what's triggering you? From social media. And then stop for 90 seconds and analyze it. And think, is that really? Give yourself, for, just for this week, try it. Try the magic number. Just with, with love and, and things that trigger you and things that, when you feel emotions, anger is a big one, when, when, it, when, it just, when it hits you, give yourself 90 seconds to get out of the cocktail and then go, God, are you, truly, are you actually trying to speak love to me? Because what happens is, is a lot of us come with love. Hey, I'm worried about you. What's going on here? What are you doing? You know, I, I notice you've been acting this way. Blah, blah, blah. And we get offended. We get in the cocktail. And then we, we think that what just happened was mean or hateful. And we push it away. And how often are we pushing love away? Because we can't get out of the mental cocktail our brain's given us. So give yourself 90 seconds this week. Anytime you're triggered, stop for a second. And go, Holy Spirit, are you trying to tell me something? God, are you trying to speak to me right now? It's hard for me to hear because i got all these chemicals going on. But if you're trying to speak, Holy Spirit, give me just a second to clear the stuff here. And then I want to talk to you. I want to know, God, do I need to change something? Is there something I need to do in my life? Is there something that would make me better, that would help my life, help my world? 90 seconds. Run it through a Psalm 72 filter. Does this... Is it justice and, and judgment and righteousness and will it bring flourishing and, and prosperity? Run it through that filter. Because if, if it is, it's not hate. <laughs> if, it, if, it fits, if it fits in Psalm 72, it's not hate. That's love. That's love. Solomon was wise enough to see that. Yes, yeah, not always comfortable love, but it's love. We need love songs. Don't get me wrong. I love a good love song. We need the, we need the warm fuzzies. We need the, the goosebumps. But we need more. We need more. And I think God offers us more if we'll just sing that song. 